0: Good everyone how are you? Love to see you. Uh, my name is Dave if we haven't uh, met before uh, and you're very welcome if it is your, new, uh, your first time with us or you're visiting uh, it's great to have you with us today. I want to begin today with uh, two statements. Um, I think one we'll all agree with the other one will I don't know we'll see how it lands. The first one is this uh, we all want change. Now when I wrote that I didn't mean of government. Okay? But nonetheless prophetic I might be as a joke I'm not a prophet. Yeah, I read uh, an article recently which talked about the differences between Australian and American politics and elections, Um, that when Americans vote for someone in their presidential elections, they tend to vote someone in. You know, woo, yeah, we believe in this guy, woo. But when Australians vote, we vote someone out. Get out of here. We're done. The safest thing you can do as an opposition leader is say nothing. Now that's not a comment on Albanese. You know, congratulations, commiserations, however you feel uh, about what's happened. We all want. Is this working? Is this okay? Okay. We uh, we all want change, um, but the change that we're looking for uh, in our lives is not the sort of change that's um, of the surface. Um, The the sort of change uh, that lasts for a little bit and then goes. uh, That sort of change is quite easy to have. No, no. The change that we're looking for, the change that we all actually really want, is permanent. We, we want to have change in our lives about the way that we feel, the way that we think, the way that we behave. All of us have things in our lives that if we could change, we would. But we find it very, very difficult. I've got a silly illustration um, to illustrate that. Uh, and it is an illustration in which you will feel less of me. But as long as we just keep it between us, I'm just going to go for it. When I was a teenager, and please don't repeat this. <laughs> to me, ever. <laughs> when I was a teenager... Um, I was a vegan. Uh, thank you for wooing. I'm surprised you have the strength to woo, fellow vegan. Um, when I was 15, uh, I, I, for around a period of a year, so I'm not still a vegan, by the way, but uh, when I was 15, for the period of around a year or so, I, I became a vegan. My, my, my uh, intentions were pure uh, and honourable. It did involve a girl who was a vegan, um, and I wanted to impress her. Although in hindsight, as I reflected on it, she also worked at KFC. So she had a complex relationship with her identity, I think, that was... Whatever the case, I actually, you know, I I read the literature and I thought, hey, this is a good thing to do. So for a year, I became, and the worst kind of vegan, okay, Uh, preachy, preachy vegan, Uh, the type who guilt tripped everyone. I had a t-shirt which had a Nike swoosh on it and the word vegan above it and said, just do it, go vegan. I was that kind of vegan. I made my poor, my poor mother. This is the 90s, okay. Not everyone was doing this. I forced my mother to start cooking tofu and lentils and all these things, and she's such a saint, a beloved, blessed woman. So she did all those things uh, for me. She'd call ahead when we'd visit places, Dave's a oh, I was just... But... but the truth was, it was all a lie. I wasn't a vegan. After a month, um, I realized that I quite literally didn't have the stomach for it. I'd bitten off more than I could chew. And so in the middle of the night, what I would do is I'd run down to the fridge, and I would, at midnight, just consume as many animal products as I possibly could, as much as I, quickly as I began to eat animal products I didn't even like before, just anything. Now, I used to pick up the bottle of milk, and go, oh, go, 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 switch it down. Now, my mother caught on to this after a while. After all, she was buying, you know, uh, what's it called, So 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 Good? Is that what it's called? She was buying soy milk and all sorts of things, you know. So she caught on to this, and this is a true story. So she began to um, draw a line on the milk bottle. <laughs> but I caught on to her nefarious plot, and so after taking a slug of the milk, I'd fill it up with water. <laughs> However, I then would no longer drink from that milk bottle because milky water, like, it tastes like light white. You know, I didn't want anything to do with that. I was all about the real full cream dairy milk now that's a silly illustration but nonetheless um i hope it illustrates something surface level change the change that we can talk about the change that we get if we have new habits new behaviors new patterns of thought well that's quite simple for us to go through we see them every year in new year's resolutions we see it all the time in all facets of life but deep change who we are that's much harder to get hold of it's much harder to grasp hold of isn't it here's my second statement only Jesus Christ can bring the change you need. Only Jesus Christ can bring the change in your life you most desperately need. Now, I don't know where you stand with Jesus. You might be a long-term believer, a, a new believer. You might um, be checking out the things of Jesus. You might not be sure where you stand But one of the most important things for us to realise about Jesus and his ministry on earth was that change, and I'll use the word transformation as well, change is at the centre of his message. Um, Jesus spoke all about change, um, but not a change which was temporary, a change which was here one day and gone the next, but rather, alternatively, the opposite, a change that was eternal. Um, And it's that change which is at the centre of the passage ...that we're looking at today. And if you do have a Bible, keep it open. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 uh, is what we're looking at today. Um, This part of the Bible is um, written to the church in Corinth around 2,000 years ago. It's a letter written by a man called Paul to the church in Corinth. And let me give you a little bit of context so that we're all on the same page... um, ...regardless of whether this is your first or your millionth time here with us. Um, The church in Corinth uh, was a church that despite starting well... ...despite uh, learning the truth about God kept getting life wrong. Kept getting their spiritual life wrong, their life with God wrong. They started to go off track, to veer away from the truth they once believed in um, and go off track in a very, very dangerous way. What specifically happened in their case is that they had come under the influence of a new leadership. New leaders had come to Corinth, from outside Corinth, people who claimed to be Christians, but who brought a new teaching teaching that most likely said that whilst Jesus was good, Jesus is worth listening to, well, he's kind of newfangled. He's he's not the best way of understanding God. He's not the best way of, of relating to God. They argued that to truly follow God, you had to go backwards. Now, what do I mean? I mean back to the Old Testament of the Bible, the part of the Bible that's before Jesus specifically, Uh, to what's called the Old Covenant. And that's a strange expression if you've never heard it before, but the covenant is an agreement, uh, a formal agreement between two parties. The Old Covenant in the Bible is uh, the agreement God had with his people, the Israelites. Now, we had our reading from the book of Exodus, an example of the Old Covenant being taking place, the commandments and the law given by God to his people. If you've heard of the Ten Commandments, they're ten of hundreds of commandments that God gave for his people as part of this Old Covenant. Now, the new leadership in the church in Corinth What they said is that what God most demanded from people, what God most demanded from his people, was not just to have Jesus, but to have Jesus plus the keeping of all the Old Testament commandments that come through the law and the prophets and the covenant. Now that might sound like nothing. After all... um, It sounds like they're talking about Moses. It sounds like they're talking about the commandments of God. It sounds like a bunch of really good, spiritually impressive things. But like all bad, nefarious, insidious teaching, the reason it was so dangerous is because it sounded so good. When you dig deeper into this kind of thinking, that Jesus is not enough, that you need to add to what Jesus has done with compulsory religious box ticking. It actually attacks the very centre of who Jesus is and what he offers. And it puts the very message of salvation, of what it means to be a saved person, what it means to know God at stake. And so what we see in our passage today is Paul, the author of the book of Corinth, Paul, the person who knew the people in Corinth as well as anyone, trying to put them back on track. Trying to nudge them back, hit them back onto the right path. And he does this in two ways. And these are the two things that we're going to spend a little bit of time thinking about this morning. First of all, what he does is he compares the old covenant, the old commandments, the law and the prophets of the Old Testament with what Jesus brings called the new covenant, the new agreement between God and his people. He does that, a comparison and a contrast, so we can see the best way to God. But he doesn't stay there. He doesn't end there. The second thing that he does is he outlines why the truth about Jesus, and I want you to hold on to this, particularly if you're new, that the truth about Jesus is not just true. It's also glorious. It's not just true. It's also life-changing. It's not just true. The truth about Jesus is the key to a transformed and never-endingly transforming life to shape the minds of Christian people 2,000 years ago and today about who Jesus is and what he brings. So what we're going to do is look at both those uh, arguments, the, the comparison, the contrast, and also the idea of, of Jesus and the change that he brings, and hopefully tie them together and uh, see how they play out in our lives. So come with me with your Bible, uh, open that up, and if you've got a phone, well, you can go there as well if you'd like. Um, chapter 3, and we're going to be looking particularly at the very uh, first part, at verse 6 to 11, At this comparison, I want you to take note of the language that Paul uses about the Old Covenant um, and the New Covenant. Look at verse 6. Now, take note in verse 6 when he uses the word letter, um, that's a reference to uh, the commandments written down, carved in tablets of stone. The letter is a reference to the Old Covenant. Look what he says in verse 6 He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Just bear with me there for a moment. What does he say right there about the Old Covenant, the letter? The letter kills. Now have a look at verse 7. He's told here, the ministry, that's the same reference, that's the same reference to the Old Covenant, that ministry brings death. Verse 9, this ministry brings condemnation. And then again in verse 7, this ministry is transitory. And that means... Temporary. Now, uh, what's the big picture of what Paul is saying? Paul is saying the old covenant from Moses, the commandments and the law given by God to Moses brings death. It condemns people. Not only that, it fades away, it doesn't last. But what does he say about the new covenant? Look again at verse 6. I Ministers mean, of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. The letter kills, but the spirit, the new covenant brings and gives life. Now look at verse 9. If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? The new covenant brings life, it brings righteousness, and that's a legal term. It means like acquittal in a court of law. Not just that, look at verse 11. This new covenant, unlike the first one which fades away, lasts forever. It's eternal. Now, it's very clear what Paul is doing here. It's kind of like putting up an a, a iPhone with a Nokia three hundred and ten or whatever, you know, is that what it was called? Whatever, the brick, you know, like an iPhone with one of those, or Netflix and Blockbuster, okay? He's looking at these two things. He's comparing and contrasting and saying very clearly that what Jesus brings is superior in every way. The new covenant, the new agreement God has with these people is superior to what Moses brought with him. But let's just pause there for a moment because whilst we might all, depending on our perspective of Christianity, of course, um, agree with that, you might be shocked by what he said there about the law and the commandments, the Old Covenant in the Old Testament. After all, he talks about Moses here, and we don't think Moses is a bad guy. Most of us who've got Bibles here, we haven't just brought the New Testament. We've also got the Old Testament. We might know the Ten Commandments. We generally think they're good things. So how can Paul say the Old Covenant brings death? It brings condemnation. Well, there's one word in particular that explains what's going on, and it's a word that's repeated 10 times uh, in these just very, very short verses. Have a look at it here. The word is glory. Glory. Pay attention there. The word glory or the word glorious is mentioned 10 times here. Confusingly, it seems to say both, it doesn't seem to say, it says clearly that the old covenant and the new covenant were both glorious. Now, what on earth does that mean? Well, the word glory, even though it sounds like a very religious word and it's used religiously, it, it's got just connotations everywhere. I don't know what you think of when you think of glorious. It might be a sunset, it might be a wave, it might be a new baby, it might be a wedding. I was at a, the wedding we looked at yesterday. I was there and the bride walking down you know, the aisle, you can see in the groom's face, he, he lit up. It was glorious. Glory means splendor, beauty on display. Now, In the Bible, when it speaks about glory, it's usually speaking about the glory of God. I don't know what your image, your mind goes to when you think of God, but the Bible is very clear that God is the epitome of glory. He's deserving of all praise and honor. He is beauty on display in every facet of his character. We, you and I, were all designed by God to see his glory and rejoice in it. Now, Paul is clear the old covenant is glorious. Why? Well, it came from God. It's God's perfect law. It came to Moses, God's chief prophet of the Old Testament. Moses is not to be sneezed at or or dismissed. Moses was an incredible man of God. The problem with the Old Covenant was not God or the law or Moses. It was people. It was people. You see, God's design... In entering into a covenant with them was to show them how far short of his standard they were. The law's intention was to show them how desperately they needed to be rescued, how desperately they needed mercy and grace because they could not keep it. You see, the key to the glory of the old covenant was the glorious one it pointed to, that in the future God would send a rescuer, Jesus, but instead of understanding it, the Israelite people who first received the Old Covenant didn't get it. And so they turned what was a glorious thing. They turned into a set of spiritual laws and rules to keep. the kind of things that, that you might do to, to win God's favor. They projected their own pettiness onto God's character. You know what we're like. Oh, I don't forget. First impressions. We need people to act a particular way for us to admire or like them. And so they projected that onto God and turned into a set of spiritual rules, do's and don'ts they had to keep to get God's favor. The problem was they couldn't do it. No one ever kept the law. And so the end result, look at verse 14. Just skip forward there. We see the end result. Paul uses the story of Moses. Um, we heard from Exodus, wore a veil after being in the presence of God because God's glory had transfigured his, his appearance. He uses this Story of Moses' veil as a metaphor for spiritual blindness. Look at verse 14. Let me read this out and pay attention to what's said here. Their minds, those under the old covenant, were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed. They can't see who God is. They can't understand what God has done. They do not see the truth under the old covenant. Is it any wonder that Paul is desperate For the Corinthian church not to be persuaded into following laws that they cannot keep. You see, this is about a a set of do's and don'ts. This is about surface level change. You can create a bunch of habits and, and disciplines in your life and those can be very good things. You can attempt to amend behavior. A wonderful thing to do. But all it does is change the surface. It rarely goes deeper. Worst of all, when it comes to a relationship with God... The Old Covenant no longer exists. It's a futile pursuit. Now, that's a very specific example of the, the Jewish people, the Israelite people, and, and the Old Covenant and the law. And it's very, very likely that that's not particularly relevant to many of us specifically, although it is relevant to Jewish people today. However, all of us, in some way or another, regardless of where we stand spiritually this morning, or I should say sit spiritually this morning, um, have our own versions of this playing out in our lives. We see it in our context in a wide variety of ways. Deep down in all of us, you see, there's a great tendency to want to prove ourselves by our activity. Deep down in all of us, there's a a tendency, a desire, to base our worth on what? On what we do. And if I don't do what I want to do, I'm a failure. If I do what I want to do, I'm a great success. I'm valuable because of my achievements. Now, religious people do this kind of thing all the time, don't we? If I go to church, if I say my prayers, if I read my Bible, if I take communion, if I get baptised, then God will look at me and, tick, I've made it, I've done it. How common do you think that is? <laughs> That's a pandemic. But of course, non-Christian, non-religious people do this as well. Just have a, have a non-religious version. I need to work hard, I need to get successful, I need to get the house, I need to get the spouse, I need to get the car, I need to get the kids, I need to get the dog, I need to get promotion, I need to do this, I need to do this. Then if I do those things, I'm a valuable human being. Now let me make it clear, there's nothing wrong with doing good things, there's nothing wrong with having disciplines and habits. The issue is when we believe that these things somehow give us permanent transformation, somehow give us the change we're looking for, Because they never do, and it never works. Now, of course, we've seen this exact same thing take place in the election recently. Did this not seem like the longest election build-up in history? It felt longer than the Second World War. Honestly, it went on and on and on. It felt longer than the pandemic. No, it didn't feel longer than the pandemic, but still. What do you notice about what both political parties, all the political parties, I should say, what is their main message? Change. It's a very difficult one to do when you've been in power for a long time. Change. They're not letting us change. We've got to change. And why do they do that? Well, it taps into the universal human desire of discontent. Vote for us. They'll make it worse. Vote for us. We'll make it better. And yet the truth is, and now this is not a political statement about a political party. This is true of all political parties everywhere. Change in society is an incredibly difficult thing to do. Political parties and governments are only able to bring about change one way. Through legislation. Through laws. The the problem is that whilst those laws and legislation, they may indeed change things on the surface. The truth is because you can't legislate the human heart, it does very little to people. Let me give you an example. Think about taxation. Who likes tax? Get out of here someone put their hand up I can't believe you You must be a policeman Um, (laughs) taxation has been around for thousands of years and generally speaking most of us unless we're libertarians can all agree that tax is a pretty good idea Um, we might not like it but then you drive along the ridgeway and you see the potholes and you think I need to pay more tax this is unbelievable what's going on here You might not like it, but then when your house gets broken into, you're happy the police are paid. When you have a heart attack, you're happy the doctors are there to look after you and the nurses to take care of you as well. Taxation is generally perceived by most of us to be for the common good, but I want you to imagine right now that Albo on Monday, tomorrow morning, he wakes up, brushes off the hangover, and he makes his first public statement, and this is what he says. My first policy is, taxation is now voluntary. Voluntary. Pay as much as you like, as little as you like. It's up to you. Let me ask you, do you think the rate of payment would go up or down? But hold on, we all agree this is for the common good, we all agree this is something that we should be doing, but you can't legislate the human heart. But I want you to pay attention to how Paul articulates the consequences of the new covenant. Look at verse 14 and 16. And my dear friends, I want you to understand what Paul is saying here in this letter is the difference Jesus makes to your eternal future. Listen to what he says, verse 14. He talks about the veil not being removed by the old covenant. It has not been removed because only in Christ, he finishes in verse 14, is it taken away. Only in Christ is it taken away. 15 even to this day when moses has read a veil covers their hearts but whenever anyone turns to the lord the veil is taken away through jesus we can see the very thing we were designed to see which is what god's glory how verse 17 now the lord is the spirit and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We, any one of us, you, no matter what your history is today, all of us, we can see the glory of the Lord not through rule keeping and, and new habits and behaviors, but only through a miraculous work of God's Holy Spirit in your hearts, revealing. The truth unveiling your eyes and turning your spiritual dullness, numbness, and blindness to sight. You know, Jesus, when he lived, and we'll talk about that in a bit more detail in a moment, but Jesus brought a whole bunch of things, but chief among them, we read here Jesus in the new covenant brought what? Life and righteousness. However, do you think we on our own would ever be able to understand that? My goodness. We, as many do, would turn what Jesus has done into a set of rules and regulations for us to keep. Which again, can I say, is the predominant view of Christianity in our culture. But you see, Jesus did not just only bring life and righteousness, he also brought with him the Spirit of God. Do you see that? And the Spirit of God is what reveals the truth to God's people. What that means is that through what God has done, in the new covenant, the new agreement with his people. We can live the life we were designed to do, to behold the glory of God, to understand the splendor of God in what he's done. We can only do it because God has made a way for us to do it. Now, what does that mean about what it means to follow the new covenant, what it means to be a follower of Jesus? My dear friends, if your impression of Christianity, of the Christian faith of people who follow Jesus, is that they're just a bunch of do-gooders, Uh, a bunch of people who set uh, a series of regulations and rules to keep in order to win God over God as a cosmic Santa Claus, although Santa Claus is kind of like a cosmic Santa Claus anyway, but God is a cosmic Santa Claus in the sky, a school principal taking the role and ticking off your report card in order for you to progress to the next level. My dear friends, the wonderful news is that it's the opposite of the truth, the very opposite, the polar opposite of what is actually taking place in the universe. Jesus brings something completely new. Spiritual life. A movement of spiritual blindness to sight. We can see God's glory. A glory that does not fade, but is eternal. Now, that's Paul's first argument. Comparison and contrast. Nokia, iPhone. Blockbuster, Netflix. Hungry Jacks, anything. Okay? That's that's what he's doing here. A good illustration is the moon. Think of the moon. This week we've had a full moon. Have you seen? That's beautiful. Sometimes it's been bright enough that through the light it, it sh- shines off. You can actually You don't need street lights. You can actually see. But of course, the thing about it. the moon is that it's not bright. What is shining off the moon? The sun. It's the reflection of the sun that we see that causes the light. We know that because the next day when the sun rises... The moon can still be in the sky, but it's no longer luminous and glowing, is it? It's just hanging there. It's still there. It's just hanging there. The old covenant was a glorious thing, but it existed to point, to shine a light onto what God would do in Jesus. What that means is when we think about the old covenant as Christians, we don't disown it. We don't cut it away. We don't ignore it. But we understand that it's been fulfilled And we read it with with the lenses of Jesus and what he's done. But make no mistake, we cannot go back to following the law because it's gone. The old covenant has ceased to exist and God does not turn back his clock for anybody. And we praise God for that. But as I said, um, Paul has a secondary goal in place here in mind. It's not just to provide evidence for the superiority of the new covenant, it's also so you and I can have our lives shaped around these magnificent truths, to understand that this is truth that is not just true, but glorious, truth that is not just true, but transformative and life-changing. Now, there's several themes on display, particularly in the second part of this passage, um, but I want to point out two, uh, two of them which I um, oh, listen, as I've been looking into this passage this week, have been deeply uh, powerfully helpful to me as I think about my own life. The first theme I want you to take notice of is freedom. I'm going to think about freedom for a moment. Freedom is, is something uh, that all of us you know, cling to and want. It's actually one of the few things that's um, promised us through the, you know, the uh, human right, uh, that this is something that we have to actually have. It's meant to be ours by virtue of being alive. The problem is that freedom is it's actually a contentious word to define. Many of us, well certainly in society, would define freedom as the ability to do what you want, when you want, however you want. Now keeping that in mind... Look at verse 17. Verse 17 says, In the light of everything that's happened through what Jesus has brought, through the Spirit, verse 17, Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. God promises that through Jesus you will be truly free. But what does he mean by free? Well, it's not to do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want. And and we should all rejoice that that's not the case. Because there is a word for that type of freedom. The word is chaos. (laughs) Because the very thing that makes change in society impossible without legislation is the very thing that makes the idea of this kind of unrestrained freedom impossible. Do you see what that is? Me. You. The way you want to live your life will undoubtedly clash with the way that I want to live my life. And whilst we might say we're all equal, remember that line in Animal Farm? Some of us are more equal than others, eventually. We all have different desires and different wants. So what kind of freedom is God actually offering here? What kind of freedom does Jesus bring? Freedom from and to what? That's the question. We all look in the first part of the passage from verse 6 onwards. We've already been shown... The freedom that Jesus brings, what he springs us from. Jesus frees us through the Spirit from death, condemnation, transitory glory, dullness of mind, covered hearts. But why do we need freedom from those things? Well, Jesus offers a view of life that can be very difficult for us to hear. And it may be the very first time you hear it or really hear it. Jesus says the biggest problem in your life is not your situation or your circumstance. It's not your job. It's not your spouse. It's not your house or lack of a house. It's not that Albo just got in or ScoMo was in before that. Your your biggest problem in life is sitting in your chair wearing your shirt. And it's beating inside your body. It's you and your heart. And by heart, when the Bible uses the term heart, it doesn't mean the vessel pumping blood. It means your soul, your inner self. You see, what we truly need freedom from is not circumstantial or situational slavery, but spiritual. Jesus, I'll just read it for you, don't go there. Um, But Jesus, in one of the biographies, uh, John, uh, in chapter 8, this is what he says, verse 34 Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Our biggest problem in life, whether or not you've ever recognized this or thought about this, is that we are slaves, you are a slave, a slave to sin. Now sin is a word that that means, think of it this way, living in God's world is one of God's creations, one of God's people, well, one of God's most precious image bearers and yet acting as if who God is and what God says doesn't matter. All of us are sinners and sin is a heart problem. And that's why our behaviour and our habits will never give us the change we want because it doesn't address the heart problem. And that's why only God, through Jesus, can bring the change you need, because only God can change your heart. How did he do it? Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ walked on the earth. Um, He had a bit of moderate popularity at first, but... And 3 years after he started preaching and teaching at some point in his 30s he was arrested put on trial tortured and killed to offer us freedom Jesus gave up his own to offer us life Jesus sacrificed his own and to offer you and I glory Jesus was glorified on the cross. Now, that's a strange expression, isn't it? You see, Jesus died on the cross, the death of a criminal, the most profane and vile, grotesque type of death a human being can die. And yet to the world, what looks like weakness and tragedy and, and just utter, utter, you know, vile, disgusting behaviour is to God the highest moment of human history and the epitome of his glory because when Jesus died, he took the punishment that we deserved. For those who trust in his death and his resurrection from the dead, three days later, he gives his spirit, his personal preference, his personal presence to indwell in our hearts to give us life. God sent His Son to buy our freedom, to be a ransom for our freedom. We are no longer slaves when we trust in Him. We're the slave master of sin. We are children with a heavenly Father. Now, what does that mean? It means that there are men and women, boys and girls, millions of us on the world, who see God's glory and worship and give Him the honour that He deserves. Through what Jesus has done and in the power of the Spirit dwelling within us, God is glorified by our seeing and understanding what that means. And what Jesus offers is not new clothes on an old person, but a new person in old clothes. That's what Jesus offers, not a surface level transformation. It's a move from slavery to freedom. Better, slavery to adoption. Been a child of God. Now, the second theme I want to notice, get you to notice very, very quickly, we'll end on this, is just the, the theme of transformation, of eternal change. You see, um, Jesus doesn't just free us from something, he frees us for something. And we see that take place in this staggering statement, the very last verse, uh, verse 18. And I just want you to go there. Um, I'm going to read it out loud. I, this is just a magnificent verse with all types of connotations for us in our life. Listen to this, verse 18. We all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. Are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now, there's a bunch of staggering promises on display in this incredible statement. We are set free to do what? To contemplate the Lord's glory, to see the true light of the glory of Christ. We are set free to contemplate the Lord's glory, to do what? To be transformed, you and I, ordinary idiots. I speak for myself, ordinary great people, to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Not looking like Jesus, but in his character, growing in our ability to live as he lived, to love as he loved. But I want you to pay particular attention to a line you might just have sped over. There's that line in the middle with ever increasing glory. Now, what does that mean? We're, if we contemplate God, we're transformed in Jesus with ever-increasing glory. Well, that's elsewhere translated as from one degree of glory to another. Now, think of a thermometer. Okay, think of a thermometer. I want you to imagine that at the very bottom, it's you, if you trust in Jesus. At the very bottom, that's you. That's the moment you've become a Christian. The very top is who? Jesus. For your entire life on this earth, the temperature gauge only travels in one direction. Degree by degree by degree. What that means is the transformation that occurs in us is progressive and ongoing, and it does not stop. It will continue on to the new creation when we are truly transformed for eternity. Where does this transformation come from? It comes from not habit-keeping... Box ticking, it comes from the Lord, from the Spirit. Now, there's a bunch of consequences of that statement, but I want you to just hold on to one as we leave here. There is no situation within your lifetime that God does not use to make you more like Jesus. God uses everything, all things, to mould you and shape you into Jesus. Now, that's a very easy statement to say when things are good. When you're singing great music, you're in Bible study, elbow wins, or no, whatever. It's a great thing, easy thing to say, isn't it? But in times of suffering and pain, in illness and death, in loss and grief, in relational tension and frustration, In marriage, in divorce, in parenting. With children, you don't even recognize anymore. How about guilt? Shame, regret. A shadow you walk away with, you walk around with. It's very possible that the power of that guilt has so consumed you that you are unable to grasp hold of the joy and the delight of God anymore at all. And perhaps you're so guilty, you've come to a point, you feel so guilty, you've come to a point in life where you feel like you're nothing. You're like a weed, you know, a weed in the garden, in the garden of humanity. You're wanted by no one, admired by no one, needed by no one, unlovable, unwanted, ugly, unable to change, good for nothing except pulling out and throwing away. I don't know if you've ever felt like that. My dear friend, you need to hear what this passage is saying to you. For you who trust in Jesus, to God, you are not a weed. You are a rose. Perfect and without blemish. Loved and wanted. Beautiful, changed and changing. Glorious. And your glory is guaranteed because it is not based on your behavior, but because you are clothed with the glory and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And not just that, he is using everything. All your suffering, all your pain, to shape and mold you, to transform you into the image of his son. It is not wasted. God uses your suffering for your good. Now, how do we know that? Look to the cross. You want to see how God makes something beautiful out of something ugly, look to the cross. The most grotesque act of human history can be used to perform, to deliver, to provide the most beautiful, most stunning, most glorious. And as you think about your current circumstance and situation, the tension, the frustration, the struggle, the, the trial that you might be going through, can I suggest to you to consider that is it possible... God is allowing these things to take place in your life so that you stop relying on yourself. So you stop finding your worth in your activity and your actions. So that you find your complete and utter identity and worth in him. And you see his glory. We've been set free, um, free from death, free from condemnation, free to live life the way we're designed. And the freedom we're offered by Jesus is not to, to do anything we please, but the freedom to, to live as we should. And it's a freedom that to the world looks like <laughs> it looks hopeless, doesn't it? Wouldn't you rather be sleeping in? It's cold outside and you're here. To the outside world, it doesn't look impressive. It looks pathetic. It looks like utter dependence. And yet to God, our dependence on him is glorious. The change you need in life will never come outside of what Jesus brings. Um, and the wonderful news is that he has brought it and delivered it. Now for some of you here today, you have, you have taken hold of that and grasped hold of it for yourself. Um, and rejoice in it although it hasn't felt like that for a while and so you need to come back to god to continue to repent and obey him um, to refine that identity in him but for some of you you've come here today and you're not christians but it might be the time in your life where you realize you know what i'm sick of living that way and it might be the time god has unveiled this great truth to you so i'm going to finish our time together i'm going to pray uh, and then we're going to sing in response let's let's pray to god Father, we give you great thanks for your son, Jesus, for what he has done for us in dying on the cross and rising from the dead. And we give you great thanks that through what he has done, we may see you in your glory. We may understand the truth of the gospel in our lives. We may understand our great need for salvation, but even better, your great provision of salvation. And Lord, I pray that for those of us who have been captured by circumstance and situation in our spiritual lives, who have found ourselves stuck up the the mountaintop of of our faith, feeling like um, the only way is down, uh, that you help us grasp hold again and again and again of your glory, that we may contemplate who you are as a pathway to our meaning and purpose in life, to our glorification, to our growth. And we pray, Lord, for those here who are not Christian. Oh, Lord, I pray um, that they would seek you, that they would come to you in repentance and faith and put their trust in you. They would see your glory. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, as, as Ben mentioned, explaining Christianity, you've got a postcard on your, on your seat there. Uh, it's a great course where we get to look into these truths in more detail, ask questions Um, or just come along and listen, I would love for you to take that card with you. Um, You can register on that, or you can use it as an invitation card to bring someone you know. We really look forward to seeing you there. Um, What better thing for us to do than sing? Thanks, Trev.